everyone. It is Friday. We are back here with another In Case I Missed It. I want to thank everybody who's been tuning in, subscribing and rating and listening and downloading and continues to listen in every week. You are making the podcast a success and it's bumping up in numbers. So I have to give it up to all of you. Today's guest is a good one. If you guys are into filmmaking, content creating and want to know the ins and outs of the business from somebody who's been in it for the long term, has two featured films out. Uh, it's working the business as hard as they could and can tell you absolutely everything that goes into being a filmmaker, content creator, creating commercials and having love for it. This is the podcast to listen to. Guys, I've had an incredible week because of you. The numbers just continue to rise. You guys are making this podcast a success, as I've said before, and I'm really happy about that because it makes me happy and makes me want to continue producing shows for you. So I don't want to get too much into it. I don't want to waste too much time, but this podcast here is a good one. I'm telling you right now, if you're into any type of content creating and want to know how hard it is to like push and put all your time and effort into something and see the success that comes out of it. Well, this is it. Guys, I'm going to leave you with this. In case I missed it, filmmaking is hard as make sure you tune in and continue listening. I'll see you guys at the end of the podcast. Make sure you take the time to rate, subscribe, love it and share it with your friends, man. Just want to get that out there real quickly. Let's go. Listen, all you New Yorkers. It's crazy. People don't know the backstory. Like when you finally make it, or you're getting your stuff uh, put out into the into the limelight, people don't understand all the hard, like literally, the tears and the blood that you shed trying to get into this business. Yeah, it's a tough business. As far as you, you end up growing a tough, like a real tough exterior because it's such an emotional job. Like in order to be a good artist, you have to be empathetic and you have to, uh, really believe in your work and you have to believe in your success and you have to do these things. So it means basically you're putting your heart on your sleeve every time you do a gig and the business is so cutthroat. There's so many people out there that are trying to get into it. Uh, the people that are hiring folks have a million zillion options so they can be incredibly ruthless about their selection process. So, uh, you really end up growing tough skin. You go through years and years of having your heart broken. Um, but then you're, you're also at this, I'm in this position where I don't want to be so tough skin that I'm calloused and that, um, I'm losing sight of the really fun emotional stuff. The reason why I got into this business. So it's this, yeah. it's this weird, you're like standing on the edge of a cliff all the time. You know I, what I mean? I agree. I, yeah. So tell, tell me and, and the people listening, how did you get into the, into this, uh, into the business and how long exactly you've been doing it? Uh, well, so the old story originally when I was in, when I was in high school, I love comic books. So comic books is my thing. And, uh, when I was younger, I thought I was going to be a comic book artist. So I went and I trained, uh, figure drawing, painting, oil painting, watercolor, all that kind of stuff. That was my thing for a long time. Um, and when I got out of high school, uh, I was a really shitty student. <laughs> uh, so I got out of high school and I applied to like one big art college. Um, and I didn't get in. 
And, um, when I didn't get in, it was like a big disappointment. Uh, and I also had a really great job. I was, a a manager at a music store, one of the biggest music stores out where I live. And I really enjoyed that job. And I was like, well, screw it. I'm going to go and work in a music business. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and work in a music store. Uh, and doing that, I met a lot of really great uh, A&R reps and people that come from the labels. And I was listening to a lot of really great music. And part of my job was really just introducing folks to good music. Um, and so I really fell in love with that and uh, was like, OK, well, maybe I'll go to school for radio. Uh, went to a community college and took a radio course. And I had my first uh, late, late, late night show. I think it was like a 3 a.m. Nice. Um, and I remember meeting with the station manager and he was like, OK, so at the top of the hour, you play all the CDs with a green sticker. And at the bottom of the hour, you play all the CDs with a blue sticker. And I'm like, well, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, why am I here? <laughs> um, and it was probably a good call because that was right around the time that MP3 started. That was like right around Napster. That was like during that period, um, which essentially was going to put all radio DJs out of business anyways. Mm -hmm. um, so I just happened to be taking a course to fill credits, which was like a film studies course. Um, and, uh, really fell in love with it and was like, Hey man, this takes a bit of everything. This takes what I love about comic books and, and, and telling a story within a frame. It takes what I love about music and sharing, like, uh, uh getting an emotional response out of an audience based upon what you're playing for them. Um, and so I really fell into it hard and, uh, went and talked to my guidance counselor at that school. And I was like, cool. So I want to do film. And he's like, all right, well, you got to take all these required courses first and you'll pick up a camera in like a year or two years. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? Yeah. And, uh, so I bailed on that, uh, went to work for community access station for years, saved up my money. And then, um, went to, uh, New York film Academy in, uh, New York city and, uh, learned how to produce and direct. Um, and then came back to where I live in Boston and started my own company and went right into business. And that was probably 2000, 2001. Wow. Something, something like that. So, uh, been working pretty steady. I, I had like, I think 1999 was the last time I had what you would call a nine to five job. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the dream, right? That's the dream to kind yeah. of like get yourself, uh, steered towards that direction. Uh, sure. It's a dream. And then you live the reality of that dream, which is the the world of being a freelancer, which means that there's uh, no uh, guaranteed income. Oh, I know. Oh, and I know that. You end up uh, trying to uh, really balance out your payment because, you know, when you do a freelance gig, like I'll do a commercial, I'll get a big check. And when I was younger, getting a big check meant like, oh, shit, let's go out and celebrate. Mm hmm. And uh, it took a couple of years to realize that uh, mm, I should be banking that because I may not work again for five months. <laughs> yeah, you're so you're so right. And, and it's funny, like I kind of had the same situation. I started off at a community college, um, except that I thought I, I wanted to get into radio as well with, with my past in it. And I was like, you know what, let me just study it, you know, and learn like mm -hmm. the fundamentals. But I ended up instead uh, going in for computer science. And after a month of that, I was like, yeah, no, this isn't for me. I'm not going to be able to do this. Sit in front of a computer for hours on end. Not really yeah. like 
doing what I want to do and what I love. And I switched over to media production and graduated from the community college, went into a four-year establishment, graduated from there this past May last year. And uh, I said, you know, I've been doing this for so long, but I don't know the fundamentals. I don't know certain things that I really should know, like the art form, you know? And I'm glad that I went to through the the hard process of learning it and, and getting it out there. But it seems to me, so you actually, then when did you graduate high school then? Oh my God, dude, I'm terrible with dates. So I is it in know, the nineties? Yeah, maybe 96. Oh, wow. I was just a freshman in 96. I think it was around then. I think it was around, dude, I don't know. I'm terrible with, with uh, numbers. I'm so bad with dates. Like literally yesterday was my mother's birthday. Oh, she no. had to, she had to text me with a, with a birthday cake in her text. She did, oh, gave me some, no. a guilty text thing. And she's like, do you know what this means? I'm like, no, don't care. <laughs> oh, mom. Sorry. Yeah, so <laughs> I would never give her the satisfaction of admitting the fact that of course I forgot her fucking birthday. Right. Right. I'm, ter- I'm terrible with numbers, man. <laughs> well, and let me ask you something. So you went to school. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned it before, but we did off air. You're from Boston. So did you go to school in Boston? Uh, initially I went to school in, well, I, I applied to mass art. So mass college of art, which, uh, they didn't let me in, which is fine. Who gives a shit? Mm-hmm, Fuck those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, went to a community school on the Cape for a little while. And that's where I did the radio. And then when I went to New York film Academy, that was in New York. So that was in union square, New York. And uh, went there and learned how to direct and produce. It was actually a good experience for me because I had no contacts in that city, right. like no family. Um, so basically plopped myself in a strange city and then had to produce three short films and, uh, really taught me how to like convince people to let me shoot at their house. Taught me how to cast. I was doing casting sessions out of Barnes and Noble. Wow. And yeah. New York is no easy feat. I mean, Neither is Boston, but coming into this city and just being plopped in, like you said, it is a disaster zone in the making. Yeah. You learn to be fearless and you have to be fearless if you're, if you're an independent filmmaker. Yeah. A hundred percent. You you gotta, you gotta, you gotta break out of your comfort zone. Um, when you're in, in, in that mindset of wanting to be a filmmaker, especially if you're an independent filmmaker. Now, Maybe you agree with me or disagree. Like we obviously both you and I are now you longer than me, but you know, we're going through the trenches of, of getting, uh, our stuff out there and, and seen while mm-hmm. the new generation pretty much is growing up with 4k cameras in their pockets and just basically shooting, which is okay. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, editing right on their phones and putting it out there and getting you know, pretty good, uh, amounts of views or, or praise for their work. How do you feel about that? Oh, it doesn't bother me. I mean, at the end of the day, your gear is just your gear. And then if you are getting views, I mean, dude, a, a cat taking a shit on a couch will get, <laughs> you know, fucking, you know, 20 million views. It's, it's about taking that traction, taking that interest and turning it into something that is long, long running, it, it's turning it into a career. And that's the difficult thing. Like views, 
We tally views, and clients do this all the time. They tally views based upon how many people look at something. But half the half the time when people are looking at things on their phone, they're in that mindless haze days anyways. I know. They're just a clicking. They're just clicking through stuff. Well, you might as well just be chewing your way through like a 500-pound pile of cheeseburgers. Yeah. Like it's, at that point, it's just like you're processing. It's great if you can find lightning in a bottle and get interest, but it's all about how you can roll that interest into continued viewership, all about how you can roll that interest into fan base uh, to get the folks that will be there to support you. Because in the long run, you ultimately need this thing to pay you. And you mm-hmm. ultimately need this thing to pay for itself. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if people genuinely like the type of stories that you have to tell. That's it. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't bother me, man. Like having all this gear at at your fingertips is fine. Everybody's got, you know, like a, a fucking red camera. And then what happens is, is in my opinion, I think it's a byproduct of manufacturers of those, of that gear. So like, the dudes that manufacture high-end equipment figured out that it was actually better to go to the prosumer market because they could just sell a lot more units. Right. And so they started to remarket, and this happened in the 2000s. They started to re-strategize their marketing ploy. So instead of selling you high-end HD gear for like $25,000, $50,000, $100,000, they were focused more into like the $5,000 market or like the, the $9,000 market. Uh, and so they just start plowing you out with this basically hacked consumer gear to be prosumer gear. And each one of these pieces of equipment would have its strength, quote unquote strength. Right. Right. There's, there's that period of time where it was like, we went from 30 uh, frames per second to 24 frames per second. And then there was a period of time where it was like, now they're DSLRs, So we could shoot with real glass, you know? And so all these little things that happen, you would get a plethora of content that was being put out by these people that just purchased this gear and just use it at its base value, which is like, here it is. Here's a shot with my super sweet Zeiss lenses. I know. Like, yeah, I know. That's a and, common thread now in, uh, on Instagram. It's like, look at me with, you know, throwing them, throwing the, uh, the gear out there in this name. And, you know, I'm one that as soon as I get my gear, I put gaffing tape all over the, <laughs> the product names. Well, you know, it's like I talk about this on my podcast. Gear is a tool. That's it. That's it. Like I've I've had other jobs. I know you've you've said you've had other jobs. Like I I, I've worked in construction. I've been an airplane mechanic, a car mechanic. I've house painted. When I work for those different companies, and I pick up like a snap on tool, snap on wrenches. Snap on's a big name. Yeah, it's a. It's a big name, you know, but I don't define my life as a snap-on tool guy, even though they really want you to do so. They'll give you like bumper stickers for your cars. They'll give you fucking swag and they'll try to sell it as if, you know, it's a lifestyle between craftsmen and snap-on tools. But at the end of the day, it's a fucking wrench and you're stuck underneath a car and a brake line is, is leaking, leaking all over you and you're looking for the right size wrench. And that's what you're doing. And it's the same thing in the film business. A light is a light. A camera is a camera. These are just fucking tools. Yeah, it's how you use them. You got to know the fundamentals before you decide to say, I'm going to get a $30,000 camera. And just because you went and you bought that fucking camera doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you're at the top of your game. I, I think that 
a lot of folks forget or don't realize or haven't been made aware because I think a lot, we're very much a consumer culture right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of folks are just very much controlled by the manufacturers, whether it's like, if I want to be a professional video editor, I have to have a MacBook pro or yes, if I want to. Right. And so, and so you buy these things and then you buy into whatever bullet points that they've sold to you, you know? So it's like the, it's the, like I said before, it's the strength of the product. So then you have young filmmakers or young musicians or whoever that are using these things going like, I've gotten really good at using the filter packages or I've gotten really good at doing this. What they need to understand is that cinema, especially cinema, cinema is a language and it's a language that's been around for over a hundred years now. It's still pretty infant in its, in its, uh, in its age, but you got to go back and study everything and you have to look at how filmmakers have defined certain techniques and how an audience is used to seeing those techniques. So if they look at a shot with a 50 millimeter lens, what does that mean? And if they look at a shot with an 85 millimeter lens, what is the audience's first reaction to that? Right. And, And so then you start to examine how these techniques will benefit your story. That's it. That's it. How the story is put together. Because if the story sucks, the gear will not be saving you from it. <laughs> sure. But you may have a great story and you may shoot it like shit. There's, there's so much stuff out there right now that I feel like the, uh, the art of visual storytelling has kind of been put on the back burner because we're in a time period now of like uh, just pure content. Yeah. So you're, you're dealing with long format shows that are very formulaic and and don't get me wrong. This is like the heyday of TV. So a lot of the stuff is just amazing for television. It's fucking amazing. Right. Yep. But you're just seeing a lot of focus heavily on script. You're seeing a lot of focus heavily on story, but it isn't fresh new stories. It's story formula. And so people are just very much focused on, on, recreating the same old story formula. And I think that, uh, the visual artists, the visual storytellers have kind of been put on the back burner right now. Yeah. Um, and so I long fucking story short here. I'm rambling. Oh, you're fine. It's it, good. Think, this is good knowledge. I think ultimately what that means is that a lot of the stuff that we're seeing is boring. It just looks boring. And so, uh, my fight these days, cause I love, I, for me, movies and film are a visual medium and you have to have a killer script. You have to have a great idea. Those are essentials, Mm -hmm. but it's a visual storytelling medium. So it's like one picture cut next to another picture, cut next to another picture, then add sound. That's the way it works for me. So I don't know. It's, it's, I guess it's a way of thinking that a lot of people aren't doing these days, but I, I missed, I missed that. Yeah, it's uh, the it's the simple stuff. That's that's what's really that's missing. Something as simple as what you just mentioned. Yeah, but it's also just telling a story with with pictures, right? You know, it's it's just that simple. And and there's we can go off and we get. I talk about this on my podcast. We can go off and go really deep in the hole and talk about techniques and talk about this stuff. But um, one of the the directors that I've been really nerding out about, um for the past year or change is, uh, Kurosawa. And I don't know if you've watched any Kurosawa movies. 
Um, but he did like the Seven Samurai. He did Yojimbo. Got it. He was the guy who influenced all the amazing filmmakers from the 70s and 80s. So like if you like Star Wars, Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. If you like any Spielberg stuff, Kurosawa. Uh, and so you go back and you look at this guy's work. He was telling amazing stories with just blocking. And a, a, a simple camera on a tripod that doesn't move. That's it. Mm-hmm. And then he moves the talent. So you'll see an actor actually start in a wide shot, actually walk into his close up, then walk over to his over the shoulder. And that beauty, that simplicity in the language of storytelling is, is sort of forgotten. And it, a lot of that has to do with like the rise of 3D animation, the rise of CG and, and how crazy that got for a while. It's actually being tuned in the right way these days. Um, and a lot of it is just disappearing with all the tech shit. Yeah. So people are like, this is an amazing movie cam shot. And it's like, yeah, but why the fuck is it in there? Right. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you just, it, for me as a director, that's all in the pre-production. And I'm doing that right now on two films where you're sitting and you're doing the legwork and you're looking and you're reading the script going, okay, how can I visually tell this story so that when people watch it, uh, they don't even need to hear the actors talk. Right. They know exactly what's going on by just the visual storytelling. That's it. it. Mm-hmm. Just looking at it. I mean, and that was something that I did on one of my short films, uh, my film 12 Kilometers, which um, is sci- about a Russian... It's a sci-fi horror, right? Is that the one? Yes. It's, okay. uh, about, it's about a Russian drill team in the 1980s that dug the deepest hole known to man. They actually drilled down into the planet... 12 kilometers deep, which is like, um, like nine miles or whatever mm-hmm. the translation is. Um, and, uh, they, there's a myth, this actually happened. There's a myth around the drill site that they lowered microphones down into the planet. And then they heard the screams of hell. And I had heard this story years ago. And after I had a near fatal accident myself with a head injury, um, I was inspired by it and I wrote a whole story around it and I did a short film as a proof of concept, um, for feature. And, uh, I did the whole movie in Russian wow. and I don't, I do not speak Russian. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, really sort of honed my skills on how to make a movie, uh, interesting to me if I don't speak the language and if I don't want to read the subtitles. And one of the best compliments that I get from folks that watch the movie is like, we don't even read the subtitles. And like we watch it a second time. Yeah. 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 We we watch it a second time and then read the subtitles and it's even better. But the first time around, it's scary before we even get to the subtitles. Yeah. So Um, what, what happened exactly that you had a, with the head injury? Like how did, if you don't mind sharing, like, sure. Uh, so, uh, years ago, it's probably like five now, four years, something like that. Um, I went on a date. I was going on a date with a girl and, uh, um, she, well, actually we had been a few dates and, uh, she kept trying to get me to go ice skating and I have never been ice skating. And I was like, what, 35, 34, 35 at the time. And, uh, I just kept blowing it off. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And she's like, well, you never do what I want to do. She gave me one of those. Oh boy. And I was like, okay, all right, we'll go. And in my head, I'm like, okay, what's the worst that's going to happen? I I twist an ankle, you know, I sprain a wrist or something. Right, right. right. So I go, 
put on the ice skates and uh, I start wobbling out on the ice and she's pulling me around and I'm watching as these little kids are just doing pirouettes around me <laughs> and uh, getting frustrated. And I said to her like, Hey, look, give me a second. Let me figure this out. You can skate off. You don't have to babysit me. Go skate off and be fine. Right. So she skates away and, uh, I see this kid push off on the ice and I'm like, okay, I can do the same thing. And I do so. And I slip back and go airborne and literally land on the back of my head. And the last thing I hear is the old oak barrel crack. Oh no. And then I'm out clean. And, uh, I wake up in intensive care. I have a doctor shining a flashlight in my eyes and he's like, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Here's the deal. Uh, you've cracked your skull. You're bleeding inside of your, your skull. Uh, it's forming a hematoma on the top of your brain. Normally what we do at this point is we drill in to release the pressure, but it's on a main blood vessel. So if I drill just like a hair too deep, you bleed out and die. And so Jesus. What we're going to do is we're going to see if the bleeding stops. Um, you're going to start hallucinating. You're going to have all sorts of crazy shit happen because your brain is being compressed by blood. Uh, we can't let you go to sleep. You should call your family. And so I was in intensive care for about five days until the bleeding stopped uh, awake for that time. Oh, my God. And I, I had all sorts of like really hallucinogenic, very sort of trippy stuff happen to me. Yeah. I was convinced that my inner voice didn't belong to myself. That was a big thing. Um, and after the bleeding stopped, I went into five months of recovery from all of the, um, multiple concussions that I had. And then, um, in that period of time, I wrote, um, the first pass on uh, 12 kilometers. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, when I came out of it, I went right to work and, and, uh, started, uh, to do the short film and uh put it together it's really it came out really great uh it ended up being about 30 minutes long uh which is really cool actually the reason why it ended up being 30 minutes long is because before that accident before all that stuff happened i had done a uh fan film yeah i did a punisher fan film called the dead can't be distracted and um uh it was really awesome actually it was really cool looking really cool stuff and uh, I made the mistake of promoting it before I released it. So I put up a couple of posters and I put up a trailer for it. And this was well before um, Punisher got picked up by Netflix. It was it was probably right after the Punisher Warzone movie came out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, put this thing online and it was based on the Punisher comics uh, that were written by Greg Rucka at the time, which were really cool, uh, where Frank Castle was working with uh, another soldier, uh, uh, Cole. She was really cool. And I really liked those books. And I was like, well, let me just adapt these and I'll make a little short Um, because fan films seem to do well for people. Yeah, they really do. And so I put it out there and we started to get a ton of press. It was like on comic book resources. It was like all over the place. And uh, generally the comments were like, this looks better than anything Marvel's ever done. Wow. Then I got the cease and desist letter from Marvel. So they sent me the cease and desist and they were like, look, you can't put this out. 
I think their comment was something like, uh, it, it looks too good to be a fan film. Uh, people will be confused. They'll think this is an official uh, Marvel production. Um, you can't release it. And I was like, well, dude, you guys can take it. You do whatever you want. And they didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and so after that, I had convinced such a great team of people. I had such a great crew working for me and we couldn't put it out. Um, and so when I went back to that well again, and I went back to hire these dudes to come and work on 12 cam, I knew that I had to make something longer than just a few minutes. I wanted to make something that I could screen in a theater when I was done. Um, and so I, I wrote a longer opening for the movie, which ended up being like 30 minutes long. So that's why. Well, at least you got, you got pretty much notice, which is great because I do have a question, um, about your love for comics, right? Because I have seen your postings and stuff like that and, and heard you talk about it on your podcast. Tell me yeah. about your love for the comic books. Is it something that you fell in love when you were a kid? Did you stay on top of it while you grew, you know, while you got older and, or repicked it up? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, dude. I mean, comic books, uh, the way I got into, I mean, I love comics Yeah, and I'm an art, I'm an art guy, obviously. And so I love comic book artists. And so I'm the, the, the dude that chases around artists. So like, I'm, I'm usually following my favorite artists from book to book. If this was like the nineties, it would get really fucking irritating because <laughs> your favorite comic book artists would do like 10 issues and then jump ship. Um, so, you know, at that time I was like big fan of, uh, Jim Lee, Jay Lee, you oh, know, wow. Tom McFarlane, yeah. um, uh, Silvestri, um, Eric Larson, um, uh, I can never pronounce his name. It's like, it's like we'll see Portacio or something. He did like wet works. He did those. Oh, hold on. I'm super fucking rude here. No, that's okay. uh, um, so of course he calls me now. Uh, <laughs> what was I saying? So, yeah. Uh, so I followed around these, uh, comic book artists and I got into it initially because like I said, I was a really crappy student when I was a kid and I didn't read, I, I wasn't big into books when I was younger. And my mother was concerned. She's like, he's never reading. He's not going to learn how to read, right? Um, and so she went to like a fucking drugstore and picked up a handful of comic books yeah. and brought them home and threw them in my lap. And uh, fun fact as well, when I was younger, I was such a crappy student that I would be grounded all the time for my <laughs> grades. And so I was grounded from watching television for about four years. Straight. What? Yeah. So oh there was a whole, God. there's a whole period of time in the late eighties, early nineties where I missed all television programming. Cause I was not allowed to watch TV. I cannot like even fathom yeah. that. Like think, <laughs> Oh damn. Yeah, wow. So there was no TV for me. Um, and so I would read comics. So I was one of four in the family. So when the family would get downstairs and watch movie night, I wasn't allowed to go down and watch movie night. I would just be upstairs and I'd read through my comic books and I really fell in love with them, fell in love with, uh, my first book that I got was Spider-Man. It was, I'm going to be terrible with the numbers. I don't know if it was like in the two hundreds, but it was right when, uh, Todd McFarlane had left Spider-Man and mm -hmm. Eric Larson had picked it up. And it was right when Venom, when they were, we were creating Venom. So it was right at that period. Yeah. Um, and I just loved it. I, I, Peter Parker 
was such a great character to identify with as a young kid. Um, as a young boy, it was a cool thing because not only is he a superhero and he can run around and do all that kind of shit, hyper-focused on like his relationship with Mary Jane and what is it like to have a girlfriend? And like, like, so I learned about relationships <laughs> yeah, yeah. Through, through Spider-Man books, which might not be the most healthy thing. But, <laughs> um, so yeah, for me it was Spider-Man and then I ended up getting into X-Men and Jim Lee's X-Men and that run. And then I jumped ship with all the artists when they went to image comics and then you had like wildcats and all that stuff. So oh, yeah, I loved them, man. And I was with them for years and years into my early twenties. And I, you know, I was, I had two different comic book stores. I had one at home and then I had one where we'd go vacation in the summertime and uh, both places I had uh, my own little pull books aside. So if you know, if you have a local comic book shop, you can actually go in there and have them pull issues for you when they come out so that you don't miss them. Right. Yeah. And so I would just go in there once a week and it'd be like a fucking $70 stack. Yeah. That I would. I'm nitpick. going through that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I was big into it. And then, um, I fell out and, you know, once I got into filmmaking, uh, filmmaking, is such an intense thing that requires a lot of your time. Right. Um, I kind of fell out of comics and was into movies and studying films and doing that for a while. Uh, and it was probably six years ago, six, seven years ago that I jumped back in and, uh, got hooked again. Yeah. And, so, and I, and it's pretty safe to say that us as, um, as filmmakers, we think back, you know, comic books have, have all of the fundamentals that you would see in a script that you could apply into, you know, filmmaking, mm -hmm. the storytelling, the visuals, right? You're visually seeing the story being played out in front of you, which is something you mentioned before. Um, and I think yeah. to me, it's like, I'm so into them again. And it's making me rethink on how to write things in a, in a script, basically. It's a wild thing. Comic books are comic book artists, at least the ones that I like are obviously influenced by cinema and then cinema is influenced by comic books. So we're in this weird sort of ancestral relationship with both of them right now. And, and the thing I like about comics is that you are telling a story with a flat two dimensional surface. Um, and in a page, you're actually conveying action through panels, which is really cool. And your brain fills in the blanks as you read. through. Yes. Yes. And it's very similar uh, to what happens with movies. And when you're cutting between coverage and you're cutting from a wide shot to someone walking out of that shot to cutting to them walking like three hours later into a store, yep. mm -hmm. your brain fills in the blanks in there. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing. And, and reading comic books, at least for me, starts to teach me how to cover scenes, how uh, you know, the power of a close up or how many shots do I need at bare minimum to convey this sense of action or convey the sense of emotion? Yeah. Your B, um, your B stories, because you know, in a comic book, you always have something else going on at the same time. So it's, sure. it's taught me how to like, look at and put detail into other things besides, you know, your good guy and bad guy. 
Well, it's just as simple as like if even if you're yeah, if you're in a moment and you have the villain holding the wife hostage or the girlfriend hostage and Spider-Man's there, it's like you could show that in a wide shot and have a couple at a ton of text bubbles around it. And it's like, Oh my God, come save me. I'll, you'll never get her. And he's like, Oh my God, my wife. Or you could do with little to no text bubbles and show him holding her a close up of the weapon on her, a close up on her eyes and the sense of love and desperation in her eyes. And then a close up on the hero's eyes and the sense of determination and desperation on his eyes and then you know it's up. So it's it's really cool to see how to it goes back to my visual storytelling thing. It's really cool to see how to tell that story with pictures, how to tell that story with uh posture, uh with action and blocking. Um and that's that's why I really love comic books. Nice, nice. Now I can tell you right now that after getting back into them, I'm a hundred percent bought in again. I am spending money <laughs> and you know, and it, and it, like I mentioned before, it's helping and, um, it's kind of cranking up my imagination just like it used to, uh, when I was younger, um, moving forward and, and, you know, I I've, I've heard from you in this, uh, conversation alone, like some really great details on, on the film business and, you know, your love for it, a lot of details. Um, you, you break it down to the finer things, which is great because people should, you know, that are aspiring to being, uh, some type of filmmaker or, or get into the content creation field, you know, they need to hear this because they need to understand the finer things. It's not just, you know, wanting to do something stupid in front of the camera and go viral. You know, if you want to take it seriously, then this is something great. Now, do you have any, uh, inspirations or, 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 um, anything inspiration you want to mention to anyone out there or any words of wisdom in order to, you know, succeed? I don't know. It just depends. Like, like, uh, I don't want to be that guy that's shamelessly plugging my shit, but that's kind of what my podcast is all about. Which, so which have, is another detail. Tell us, tell us about your show. Let, let, let everyone know. Like I listen to it. Obviously it helps me. Um, there's no yeah. shame in, in if you're too prideful to say <laughs> it out loud that you watch or listen to someone else, you know, then that's a you problem, you know, but right. I can, I can honestly say, you know, there's, there's times I'm stuck as a creator. You, you get these mental blocks or writing blocks and you, you're, you just don't have anywhere to go. And sometimes being able to listen to someone else and their experiences and what they're going through, you, you know, or how they are succeeding helps you sometimes chisel away at that problem. Well, dude, our business is a social business. It's like, it's one of the few art forms. Like if you're a painter, you sit in your loft or your room or wherever it is that you paint and it's you that paint the brushes and the canvas and that's it. But for filmmaking, it's not. Your brushes are human beings. Yeah. Your your canvas are human beings. Like that stuff, are, they're folks, they're people. And the best, I think the reason why movies are so magical and sometimes they seem so unattainable uh, is because it isn't just one person doing it. It's, it. It is one person collaborating with another person that has a great idea. And so... I, I don't necessarily believe in this whole, this filmmakers and auteur kind of press thing. I think that to be a good director, you've got to be able to choose the right people to work with. And 
those folks are going to make you look good. Right. And at the end of the day, you're just hanging out and you're talking. So long story short, you listening to my show or me listening to someone else's show or going and listening to like director's commentaries on, on Blu-rays or, or just watching YouTube clips, those things are great ways to, to basically shake the rust off the gears. And sometimes it's just a good way to get you out of your mindset because as a creative, your brain likes to throw these little these little fucking traps down yeah. where it's just like, Hey, well, you're not going to be able to do that. This yep. time yep. So you have all these little pitfalls that, that throw themselves in front of you. And so, uh, at least for me, what I try to do to avoid those is I, I just try to talk about my idea with other people that I like or that I work with or listen to how the directors work. When I was doing 12 cam, man, like, the first couple of days were just brutal. It is a huge shoot. Like I had to create 1980s Russia in uh, a small town outside of Boston and uh, recreate a dr- uh, oil drilling well in a warehouse. Yeah. So it was a it was a very stressful thing. And I remember just you have this moment where you're just overwhelmed. You got a crew of over 40 people. You've got at least 30, 40 extras. You've got all this stuff. I remember I came home that night and I just started watching YouTube videos of directors that I like just hunting and hunting for mm-hmm. inspiration. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find sometimes because most of those videos are just like press junket stuff. Like normally if this was, if this was a regular setup for a show thing, I'd be on your show because I'd have some new project that I was going to fucking talk about. And so most of the time, during this whole thing, I'd be bringing it back to that project. Well, let me tell you about the movie that I'm working on. (laughs) And so that's, that's like 99% of the content that is out there for filmmakers. Yeah. And when I set out to do my podcast, I wanted it to be two things. One truthful, because most of the shit that we see is all bullshit. So when you're looking at other people's Instagrams and you're looking at other people's stuff, you're like, my God, they live like the coolest yep. life and it's the best. Fuck you. Yep. That's all bullshit, mm-hmm. like manufactured stuff. So one, my show is going to be truthful. Two, I wanted to give the same sort of insight that I wanted to have coming up. So it's, it's not like, here's the cameras that I use. Sure. I'll, I'll talk about gear, but it isn't, here's the cameras I use. It's more like, here's how I survived not getting work for five months or here's uh, something to think about with your taxes or here's uh, how to actually, when you finally get that amazing cinematographer that is better than you, here's how I talk to him or here's, here's that kind of stuff. So the real shit, you know, because I think at the end of the day, the filmmaking business should be taught in a apprenticeship way. It's not, Going into a classroom and reading film theory, great. Study film theory, but you can get a fucking book. Yeah, correct. Right. Uh, Filmmaking, to me, is very much a trade. And it's like, because I came up through the trades, doing the mechanics and all that kind of stuff. I believe in helping. I believe in teaching. And not just to help people and give back. Because, come on, we're all selfish in one way or another. It's also because it, it helps me process a lot of my problems that right. I'm having. Yep. So me talking through stuff with you makes me remember, oh, right. Fuck. Yeah. No, yes. no. Right. Exactly. So, so then your work gets better because you're sharing. And that's one thing that I, I give a lot of my peers shit for because 
a lot of folks are come. They're worried. They're like, "Well, if I tell them what lenses I have, then they can go out and buy those lenses, and then I'll lose my job." And it's like, "Well, if you were just getting hired because you had those fucking lenses, then you deserve to lose your fucking job." Yeah, correct, exactly. So, like, that's what my show's called. In love with the process. Yes. Um, and you can you can uh, check it out. It's on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud. All that stuff. Um, I've been putting out episodes pretty regularly. My guests are filmmakers, artists, uh, musicians, like all sorts of different folks, people that I've worked with. I've even had like people that have been in my movies. I've had my mother on the show. We talk about raising, (laughs) we talk about raising creative kids. That's wholesome. That's what that is. That's wholesome content. Yeah, dude. I mean, because at the end of the day, being a filmmaker just isn't about cameras and just isn't about your set. Right. Being a filmmaker, you have to live your life and you have to realize that uh, it takes eight years of you working really fucking hard Mm -hmm. for any before anybody even knows that you're pretending to be a filmmaker. It takes that long. And then after that, it's another two years before clients start to hire you. Yep. And they, they start to hire you based on the shit you did five years before that. Yep. And so if you think getting into this business is going to be like glam or fucking, if you're in this business to prove something to somebody else and that's your main goal, you're going to be pretty goddamn miserable. And the purpose of the show, the reason why it's called the bubble, the process is that you have to learn to fall in love with all of these little steps because 99% of this career is living in those little steps. And uh, the big steps come and go. Like you're finally on set, you finally call action. That took you three, four years to get to that point. Yeah. And so uh, my show is just about celebrating all these little people that you meet along the way, celebrating these little techniques, celebrating food, celebrating inspirations. Um, I, I'm sure that you saw my Instagram at uh, Mike Petchy is where you can find my stuff on Instagram, but I'm sure you saw me doing uh, the comic book stuff. Yes. I, I've been giving away because I, I'm basically trying to downsize. And I have so many fucking comic books. <laughs> Um, and I don't want to throw them out. And so I've been giving away what I call inspiration kits, which I have to do today. Actually, I have to mark off my books. Um, but basically it's like a little package of comic books that I love and that I'm inspired by. Um, and then I'll go through on one of the issues and I'll put little post-it notes so that I don't ruin the book. Right. I'll put little post-it notes in there talking about what inspires me about this book. And then I usually package it with some of my prints or posters or whatever. And then I put it up in the stories and, and I asked for a bid. I usually start at like 35 bucks, which is well underpriced for like six issues or whatever the hell it is. Um, and then, uh, whoever pleads their case either gives me a good price for it or says, look, I, I'm doing this project and these things would be really great. I sell them the books. I just truly believe in inspiring and being a part of that because I get so much great energy from that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, I agree a hundred percent. Um, being, being in the trenches and inspiring is, is, is what it's all about, man. And you know, I want to definitely, uh, say thank you. I reached out. Do you think that, you know, I, I see that you're busy and I think you probably have the time, but I want to thank you for coming on, man. And spending some well-deserved knowledge to anyone who's going to be listening to this. Um, sure, as sure. A, I, I feel that as a filmmaker until the day that I have my last breath, I will always be learning from everyone else. So this to me has been a learning process as well. 
And um, where can people follow you so that they can uh, find uh, your stuff? Being a visual guy, I've got all the social media shit. <laughs> so like, <laughs> you know, tw- Twitter doesn't do shit for for me because Twitter is like, you either go on there to like tear down some celebrity or, you know, put up a couple words of wisdom. Um, so I'm on Twitter, Mike Petchy Twitter. If you want to go there, if that's all you use, if you live in a fucking cave and you only use Twitter, uh, I'm also on Facebook. Um, but the bay, the best place to find me is on Instagram. So Instagram I'm posting daily. I do live stuff. I have giveaways. Instagram is the only place that you could ever see my film 12 cam because it is not out to the public. And the only way that I show it to folks, you have to write me a direct message on Instagram and tell me your three favorite horror films. And uh, if I like your choices, <laughs> you get to see it plain and simple. And I'll send you a, I'll send you a link that will expire, but you'll be able to see the movie. Nice. Um, so that's the best way to do it. It's at Mike Petchy on Instagram. And like I said, tune into the podcast. It's great. I mean, I have, a bunch of like guests, the guest range, dude. So it goes from like my mom to like Tom Cruise's stuntman. I love so it. It's like huge variety of shit. Um, and it's fun. It's inspiring. Um, yeah, there you go. Well, There's Mike, th- I, I want to thank you again, man. I appreciate it. And, um, hopefully there'll be a part two somewhere where we can bring you back on and, and, you know, see what else you've been up to and perhaps promote one of your work or many of your, uh, working titles or whatever you have happening in the next couple months. It's fine. It's totally cool. And whether or not you want to promote, you just want to talk comic books is fine. Dude. Yeah, that, that one's coming too. <laughs> Thanks man. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, of course. All right. That's the end of the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please take the time to follow me on Instagram at Alexis Cardoza altogether. Uh, Same thing on Twitter, but on Twitter, it has an underscore in the front. So it's underscore Alexis Cardoza. And I'm going to be putting details on my YouTube channel from now on. So you guys can follow me on there and we could uh, start this content creator series. And if you guys know absolutely anyone that you would like me to interview, whoa, no, did I just say interview? sit down and have a conversation with. I don't like interviews, such a dirty word. I want to sit down with them and have a conversation with them. So if you have anybody in mind that you would like me to have a nice uh, conversation with, get behind uh, the mind of who they are and their story and uh, see if it could inspire anyone, please uh, let me know. Hit me up on, on any of the platforms. My DMs are always open and I'm willing to speak to anyone. If anybody has any ideas or if you're in the New York City area and you want to collaborate, you want to put a film together, you want to do some magic, hit me up. And until next week, friends, this has been In Case I Missed It.